0: hello everyone and welcome to our second episode of globally lit a podcast on international literature and translation brought to you by the choose center for international writers and books across borders my name is matthew davis i'm the founder and director of the choose center here at george mason university on this episode to honor april's national poetry month we're going to feature Palestinian poet Najwan Darwish's most recent collection of poems, Exhausted on the Cross, published in March by the New York Review of Books. The book was translated from Arabic by Najwan's longtime translator, Kareem James Abu Zaid. First, I'm gonna be in conversation with Najwan about his collection and the role of the poet in Palestinian society. Next, writer and translator Vivek Narayan will be in conversation with Kareem about his work as Najwan's translator. And finally, we will hear two great recent translation recommendations from booksellers at Solid State Books in Washington, D.C., where you can buy Najwan's book, Exhausted on the Cross. Najwan Darwish was born in Jerusalem. He has published eight books in Arabic, and his work has been translated into over 20 languages. The New York Review of Books, which has published English translations of his book, Nothing More to Lose, and Exhausted on the Cross, describes him as one of the foremost Arabic language poets of his generation. And with that, Najwan, I welcome you to Globally Lit.
1: Uh, hello, Matt, uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you here.
0: Thank you, and we're, we're really thrilled um, that you're here. And, and I wanted to, to open this conversation by, um, by you reading one of your poems in, in Arabic. And, and you're gonna read from this recent collection, you're gonna read a poem
1: called Four Meters. Thank you, Matt, with a pleasure. أربعة أمتار في تلك الغرفة التي كانت أربعة أمتار في أربعة أمتار بساتين تمتد إلى اليونان مدن فارسية بأكملها قندهار وبخار بمآذنها الأسطوانية كان فيها الوجه الشمالي من القفقاس وتلك الضلال الخضراء من أرارات ومقابر كثيرة كنت أتجنب دائما البحث في هوية أصحابها وهوادج تتمايل في المعلقات ونساء بمناديل بيضاء أطول من العصور وكان البعد والقرب في تلك الغرفة حجري رحا يدوران على النفس أقنية موسيقى كانت تجوس ولا يحصون أولئك موسيقيون الذين أقاموا فيها لياليا وواصلوا طريقهم فلا سفة يائسون أيضاً وشعراء هاربون من بيوت أمهاته وروضات أطفال تديرها جنيات متقاعدات كان فيها ما لا أقبض عليه الآن ولا أعرف حتى أن أسميه كانت خلاء على الأرض ومحتشده بالأمم كأنها عرس في صباح يوم القيامة يا محمد أين ذهبت كل هذه الازمنه خلق كثيرون يتعلقون قصورا مشيدة في الجنة أما أنا فلا أبحث هذا الصباح سوى عن أربعة أمتار في أربعة أمتار وحدي أعرفه
0: Thank you so much. That was so beautiful to listen to. I mean, I, I was oftentimes if I'm listening in a in a language that I'm I don't know well, I will read along in, in the English if I have it. But in this case, um it was just such a pleasure to listen to that to the original Arabic. So thank you very much for um for reading. And, Um, I'm going to note that in the next section of this podcast, we're going to hear Kareem read that same poem in English. But for context, this poem, Najwan, it it expresses a real sense of loss, and a feeling of loss permeates many of the poems in this collection Exhausted on the Cross, and whether it's regret or defeat or mortality. So my my first question to you is, is, why does this feeling... Appears so much in this collection?
1: It should be like this. The loss you are talking about and other things are the human product, and maybe it's the product of my part of the world. So honestly, I never thought of criticizing my my poems or to talk about them or to tell about them. I think the poem should tell about itself and the poet should not um, become an academic to talk about his work but i think what what you said was precise and i have no disagreement with you and as well i don't have much to add
0: well, let me let me ask you a, a, a follow up to that then what why do you why, why do you believe that the the poet should not sort of be a, a critic of of his or her own work what
1: sort of prevents you a little bit from from discussing it it's a sign of weakness that the artwork is not good enough that you need to say something about it so the, the reader or the viewer or the listener would interact with it i'm not sure that the artwork need help the artwork hmm. should find its way without the help of the intellectual in the poet this is one. Second, I think whatever the poet would say about the poetry or the, or the artist would say about the art, he always would remain under the art. He would never reach what the art is or what the poem is. And I may ruin any piece of art if I would talk about it, especially if I am the artist. Others may say something about the poetry and they always enrich it when they are talking about it. Artist should not do that, or a poet should not do that. I think this is not his space, not his role. His role is to create something and to free it, free your love, free your poem from your intellectual abilities.
0: Thank you for that. That's that's a very powerful sentiment, I feel like. And and it, it leads me to this question then about because you're a writer, but you also are a reader. And so how do you as a reader, how do you approach poems and poetry? How do you, how do you, if you're picking up a book of of Rita for example, who, who wrote you know, a lovely forward for this book? If you're approaching his poetry when you pick it up, how do you, how do you approach it? How do you read it?
1: Uh, a poet, before being a poet, you are a reader. Before that, and after that, and if you would give me two choices to be a poet or to be a reader, I would choose to be a reader. Being the reader is the real joy, and I am thankful to all the poets I read in my life. And I think I am what I read. I am all the poets I read and I admire. So this is one. You mentioned Raúl Zorita. I wouldn't uh, find the words to describe how much I loved poetry and how much I uh, admire him. And he's, uh, uh, he's from my family. The poetic family, if I would have a poetic family, if a poet would have a family, he would be my family. Uh, And he's a great poet. I advise anyone to grab any text by Raul Zarita. He's the the cream of Latin American poetry. I love Latin American poetry, and there is a lot of wonderful poets in Latin America. And the work of Raul is on the top of that.
0: That's great. What about uh Arabic language poets that we maybe don't know um a lot about who who is writing in Arabic whether alive today or um that has that has passed on that is not translated as, that much into English um that you would love to sort of see translated uh, that an English speaking English reading audience should be more aware of.
1: There is like 2000 years of po- of Arabic poetry deserve to be translated and deserve to be read. Uh, unfortunately, very very few of Arabic poetry is translated. I would say Arabic poetry in general is untranslated to English and to other languages for different reasons. But according to me, I may not be very objective because I belong to this tradition and I am part of this of this tradition. I may not be the most uh, objective in my opinion, though I would say it is one of the greatest poetic traditions in the world in general. And the Arabic tradition is very influential. It influenced the uh, all the neighbors around us. The Indian traditions, the Persian traditions, the Turkish traditions, even the Western traditions, they all influenced by Arabic poetry. And if you don't know Arabic poetry, you don't know much about the poetry of the world.
0: What is the role of the of the poet and the poetry in, in in Arab society and specifically Palestinian society? I mean, you you it's you mentioned the influence of of Arabic poetry on international on worldwide poetry, but what about in in society? What is the role of of the poet in a poetry? Because I I do think it's very different in the Arab world and in particular in the The Palestinian
1: world than it than it is in in the United States, for example. I think this is a kind of um, Western imaginary, Western imaginary that Arabic poetry or the poetry in Arabic society has a better role because much people would come to a poetry evening. There is this image. I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure that we do have or that poets in the Arab world do have a role by. I think social media took all the roles from, from poetry and from other arts and other forms. Even it took the role of struggle. Our strugglers nowadays, they struggle through social media, not in reality or not through reality. The role of poetry in the Arab world and everywhere, it's a historical role. Poets are the historians who would say something to history and something about history. And something for history, so this is the work of a poet. This is how I see the work of poet, and this is how I see my role as well. I deal with myself as a historian.
0: That's interesting. I, I've I've not heard you say that before. So when you are saying you see your role as as a historian, what kind of responsibility do you feel by by saying that in terms of um, telling the stories and the yeah, the stories and and the in the, writing poems not just for today but for
1: the future as well. First, the material of poetry, the, the material of poetry beside language, is geography and history. All poets do write about history and geography and and language. These are the materials of poetry. So poetry, poet by craft, is a historian. Hmm. I'm talking about serious poets. I'm not talking about uh, millions of men and women around the world who write poetry. And when we talk about poets, we differentiate between people who write poetry and poets. Yeah. These are two different things. So poets are historian by craft. They know history. They have something to say to the history or to correct in history. They have their neglected histories they want to highlight, and they leave something for history. Till today, we're still reading Homeros, Imra al-Qais, all the great poets of history, we still read them because they left something to us.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I, I I really love that thought. I'm going to read, Najwa uh, one of the, the briefer poems in this collection called A, A Question. I'm going to read it in English and then ask you a a question about the the poem. It's called a Question. If you are not, then who is? This is a question for the midday sun, for the celebrated traitor, for the haughty object queen. If you are not, then who is? This is a question that turns upon itself, that grinds itself down with the salt of reproach and keeps on grinding. This is a question for my people. My question about this poem is uh, that end line. Uh, this is a question for my people. Who, who, who are you addressing when you say my people?
1: Whom I'm addressing at the moment when I wrote it or now? Either. These are two different things. Huh. Explain. The language is not something fixed, not something. Uh, it's growing and poems do grow. Maybe when I wrote it at that time, my people were a certain group. Maybe they were my family or my own people, the Palestinians or the Arabs. But they could be anyone I belong to. So uh, maybe the, the listener now, the one who may listen to our conversation, they could be my people at the moment. And this question, it could be addressed to them and and this is the significant thing about art because it doesn't have the limits of the discourse any discourse it has limits art does not have limits and poems do grow up and they do enter their own transformations and do change and do do become better or become worse and this is the magic i would say of uh, of poetry and this is how poetry can survive and live through times and ages and generations. Because yeah. it can address the question to uh to different uh to different people. So there isn't my people. My people are a continuous transformation.
0: I, I love that idea and, and people is people are continuously transforming and, and changing and, and so is so is land. So is place. And and one of the things uh, that struck me about this collection of poems is there are many descriptions of, of Palestinian land, uh, many descriptions of physical locations in Palestine. And you're you're a world traveler. You travel a great deal. And 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 when you are traveling and when you're not home, um, what what do you miss about it? What do you miss when you're not there? What do you, what do you what are you thinking about? What are you seeing in your mind's eye? What are you smelling? What do you, What are you? What do you miss when you're
1: not home? Two things. I miss very much the spring. Whenever uh, a spring is coming and I am not there, I feel sad. I want to be part of the spring every year. Of course, I am. You would be in, and also in other great lands and great countries, and being beloved by your surrounding, but missing the spring in palestine always something touches me when when i do that the other thing i miss being in palestine when there is aggression the worst thing for me being outside the country when there is when there is a certain aggression on my people like uh, bombing like so i uh, it's the hardest thing for me to be uh, uh, outside when such things happening yeah when there is massacres happening and I am not there, I wouldn't sleep, and I would keep in nightmares all the time. I would bear it more when I am there. When I am there, whatever would happen, I can't stand it, but I can't stand it when I'm outside. This is what I'm missing. The best, which is the spring, and the worst, which is the massacres and the aggressions and the atrocities of uh, colonialism in Palestine.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for being being so honest about, about that. And we're in we're in springtime now. And you're talking about you can bear a massacre better when you're when you're there. And you know, the the title of your newest collection is is exhausted on, on the cross. And you know, the cross that um you know that that's a very big metaphor for what people can bear. And so, you know, Najwan, I really wanna wanna thank you for for being um for joining us today at at, at Globally Lit. We really appreciate it. Um, and I want to encourage all of you listening to uh, please purchase Exhausted on the Cross. You can buy it through Solid State Books' website in Washington, D.C. But Najwan, thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Matt. Hi, uh,
2: I'm Kareem James Abu Zaid. And this is my translation of Najwan Darwish's poem, Four Meters, from the book Exhausted on the Cross. Four Meters. In that room that measured four square meters, there were gardens stretching to Greece and entire Persian cities, Kandahar and Bukhara with their spiral minarets. In it, you could find the northern face of the Caucasus and the green shadows of Ararat, And all those graveyards I always avoided, not wanting to know the names on the tombs. And how does, swaying in the pagan poems, and women with white handkerchiefs longer than the ages. In that room, proximity and distance were two millstones bearing on the self. And the music was always flowing. Countless musicians who stayed a few nights before going on their way. There were desperate philosophers poets fleeing their mother's homes, kindergartners managed by retired jinn. There was also that which I cannot grasp now, which I cannot even name. It was a void on earth yet brimming with nations, like a wedding on the morning of judgment day. Muhammad, where have those days gone? The people clutch at palaces in heaven, But all I'm looking for this morning is four square meters. I'm the only one who knows how they were lost. I'm the only one who knows there's no bringing them back.
3: Wow. Kareem James Epizade, how are you? This is Vivek Narayanan.
2: Good morning, good.
3: (laughs) So uh, that was an incredible poem, Uh, Four Meters. And you know, it brings me like so much of Najwan Darwish's work to the idea of the poem as a kind of time travel device, as a kind of portal. So, what does this poem mean to you? Or, to put it even more simply,
2: what is this poem to you? Well, you know, obviously there's a lot of ways it could be read, and so I don't want to limit it to, to any one interpretation, uh, including mine. I'm not sure if I have uh, just one for it, but what I I can say what resonates with me about it, and that's you know in this new book uh, Exhausted on the Cross, there's uh, there's a a lot of the poems feel very claustrophobic. Um, there's a sense of claustrophobia and sort of weariness in a lot of them, uh, but this one here is obviously much more expansive. You know you mentioned the time traveling and and uh, there is claustrophobia right four square meters obviously is a very tiny space. Uh, I, when I was 18, I had an apartment that was eight square meters. And uh, it was, if I laid down, nobody else could come in, you know, that, that was all the space. So there's that, but there's also this, this sort of immense expansiveness, um, not only in terms of geographies, but, but as you mentioned, also in terms of time, right? In, in, in a fairly short poem, it's just one page. Um, you know, we move backwards to the pre-Islamic period, Uh, which is, you know, probably sixth century, sixth century AD, and then we move all the way forward to Judgment Day. So uh, that, that expansiveness really resonates with me, you know, in tension with the claustrophobia of the space. And then, you know, also there's this deep sense of loss in the poem, and I'm not going to try to interpret what exactly that means, but certainly loss comes up a lot in Najwan Darwish's poetry, you know, the title of his first collection in English was Nothing More to Lose, you know. So um, I think that's all I'll say on that one. (laughs) Hmm. How would you describe the
3: taste of Najwan Darwish's poetry to someone who has never tasted it before?
2: Uh, You know, I would say it's bitter and it's sweet (laughs) Uh, if we're gonna use the taste metaphor. Um, It's, there's a lot of variety. Sometimes the poems are more personal. Um, sometimes they're more political, overtly. Uh, sometimes they're more spiritual, um, and often it's a combination of these and many other facets. So, and, and he has Nizwan also has a really great sense of humor, quite amazing sense of humor. Anyone who knows him personally knows this, and that that shines through in his poetry. Uh, but I would say it's it's kind of a dark, it's a dark humor. There's a bit of you know it's a bit of a black humor and. Uh, Sometimes it's a bit like you know maybe uh, the movie Doctor Strangelove. Probably more often it's closer to Fargo. Uh, it's it's uh, a dark humor that's rooted in in some harsh realities. So that's I guess that's how I would say it in just a few words. Describe his poetry in just a few words. Hmm.
3: So with a poet who is at once so clear and so elusive, um, what kinds of questions and clarifications that you Find yourself asking him as a translator, and since you know a poem needs to keep its secrets, a poem needs to stay hermetic. Uh, did he resist those questions? And you know, more generally, I, I just wanted to maybe describe the writer- translator relationship and practice in this instance. Um, how 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 did you how do you come to understand each other?
2: Well, we work quite closely together uh, and Najwan's English is excellent. So he's able to read the English and and offer suggestions, which is really helpful. Um, In terms of the questions, for me, I always feel like I need to have a clear sense of a poem, a clear interpretation, or maybe not interpretation, but a clear idea of what is most important in each poem in order to translate it. Um, Sometimes that might be an emotion. Sometimes it might be an image. Sometimes it may be an interpretation, uh, a specific interpretation, though that that latter one is not so often the case. In terms of the questions I ask him, um, and Najwan has a huge breadth of knowledge and he's always delving into new geographies, and new histories. And so just to give an example, right now, uh, Turkey and Central Asia have been coming up a lot in his his more recent work um, since this latest book. And those are geographies I'm not very familiar with. So I might ask him background questions about certain references in the poems, or sometimes how he views particular historical events. So right now I'm translating a series of poems that have the Council of Chalcedon as their backdrop. And that was a meeting of of, uh, about 500 church bishops in Turkey in the fifth century AD. And so, uh, with there, I might ask him how he views that particular event and its aftermaths, what it means to him. And sometimes I may ask him about the emotions behind a particular text, um, if they're not clear to me. So those, it's not that I usually ask him, what exactly does this poem mean? But there, there may be emotions around certain references and stuff like that that I can hone in on that help me uh, figure out how to do it in English. It's it's
3: fascinating, and and you know, it reminds me that uh, you know translation is probably uh, the deepest form of reading that one can uh, do, and so so as a deep reader of Najwan's work, what would you say is one aspect of his uh, poetry that would most unsettle perceptions in the West about what contemporary Arabic poetry is? And I'm going to tack on a couple of other questions there, but which is just which is, I want you to be able to give us a scene of the sense of the scene in contemporary Arabic poetry. Uh, I know it's a it's a vast, it's not even mm-hmm. a scene, it's a vast terrain moving across multiple countries, but, um, you know, just a sense of it and its relationship to the multiple millennia long history of poetry in Arabic, which is a resource that it seems like uh, contemporary
2: poets writing in Arabic are continually drawing on. Well, you know, I think what, I feel like the, maybe one of the perceptions in the West about Arabic poetry, certainly Palestinian poetry, is that it's all going to be political. And so that's uh, that's not the case with Najwan's poems. There's, and, and often when the political is there, it's very subtle. Sometimes it's more overt, but very often it's subtle. And sometimes it's hard to read it into it at all. You know, it's a little bit of a stretch. So that's something I think that would defy expectations. Also, his sense of humor in the face of very sort of harsh political realities. And then frequently when the political is there, it's not what people would expect. So in his first collection, there's a poem called Identity Card. And there's a line in there where he says it's a, another expansive poem, it's actually quite close to four meters, I think, it has a lot of resonances with that poem, but there's a line in there, he's embracing all these different identities, Amazigh, Arab, uh, Persian, all this stuff. And then there's a line in there where he says, and my scorn for Zionists will not prevent me from saying that I was a Jew expelled from Andalusia and that I still weave meaning from the light of that setting sun. So even when the mm-hmm. political is there, I wouldn't say that it's us versus them. And it's this just antagonistic, you know, he will call out the injustices that are taking place, but it's not black and things are rarely back, black and white with uh, Najwan Darwish's work is what I would say. In terms of the scene, the, what contemporary Arabic poetry looks like, uh, I don't know that, I don't pretend to have a grasp on all of it. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm guest editing uh, a special section on contemporary Arabic poetry for the uh, literary journal, Shen- Shenandoah. And um, even that, even doing something like that, it's impossible to be representative of uh, contemporary Arabic literature in, in any meaningful way. You know, there's 22 countries I think right now in the Arab League. And so I don't have a good answer for that one, um, but to answer the question about uh, the relationship with the classical uh, literary tradition, that is still, what I've seen from what I have read is that that is still very strong. And, you know, in most contemporary Arabic poetry or a lot of it, there's still a very strong connection to the classical Arabic tradition. And I should note, you know, maybe for people who are not familiar with Arabic is that there's perhaps a greater linguistic continuity also with the classical Arabic tradition. So we're speaking in modern English, but we would really have to go take a university class in order to read Old English. And the same thing with German, you know, and middle high German or or old high German. Uh, And Arabic, actually, there's much more continuity. If you read modern standard Arabic, you should be able to to read a classical text, you know, with a dictionary and knowing a few little things that have shifted along the way. Uh, It's much more, it's not, there's not that big gap uh, that we have in some European languages.
3: Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. And um, that explains it, this this sense of being connected to all of this that you find. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, it's, it's a very, very, what someone like me can access in English translation is sometimes feels like a tiny sliver, like a tiny slat of light into uh, something, something vast. Yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, but, but there's also the question of you know what are the good trans what are the good translations to read or what are the excellent translations to read so so what are some of the highlights of arabic poetry that english readers might find in excellent translation you know whether ancient medieval modern or contemporary and i'm thinking of i guess i'm thinking of sort of like a kind of a summer reading list of arabic <laughs> poetry uh, in english
2: translation what would that look like I don't know if I have a good reading list. I'll give just a couple suggestions. I mean, I think for classical, Michael Sells translations are some of the very best. And uh, his book, Desert Tracings, has a lot of very old, some of the oldest Arabic texts. Um, So anything by Michael Sells. He has a new one that's called, it's by, uh, by the 12th, 13th century mystic poet Ibn Arabi. That's called The Translator of Desires. So for the older texts, I would say Michael Sells. Um, is someone whose work I greatly admire for poetry. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff with modern, you know, there's a lot of people I, I admire. Like I said, uh, you can check out the, the next issue of the Shenandoah journal, and you can really just go look up the translators is how I would do it, because that's a section on poetry. So, and there's a lot of great people doing excellent work right now uh, in Arabic. Um, I'd say more and more translators are starting to get training in really literary translation. You know, whether it's through MFAs or residencies or workshops or, or those kind of things. So it's hard to give a reading list for modern, but uh, once you find a couple of translators whose work you like, then, then you can go from there is what I would say.
3: Yeah, that, that's, that's good news. And, and can you talk about any other poets that you're working on right now?
2: Uh, yeah, just very briefly, um, there's a French uh, a poet named Olivia Elias who's actually a French language poet, but she's uh, a poet of the Palestinian diaspora who has multiple citizenships. And uh, that book is called Chaos Crossing, and it's coming out at uh, World Poetry Books uh, next year in 2022. And um, it's exciting for me because uh, it's my first full-length book that I've translated from French, and her poetry is really powerful. It takes up a lot of different topics, refugee experience, Palestine, of course, Uh, even spirituality, meditation. So it's quite varied and and she has a very unique voice. So that's Olivia Elias. And then uh, there's a Moroccan poet I've been working on, Bouchaib uh, Kader, and uh, he lives in New Orleans. So it's also kind of cross-cultural. I'm co-translating some of those with Rada Murad. Right now it's not a book, we're just publishing here and there. So I think uh, one of the poems is coming out in Asymptote, uh, the literary journal Asymptote soon. And he's a wonderful poet with a very sort of strong emotional content uh, in his poems, which I like. so those are two two of the projects, I guess. great.
3: And you know you read your uh, translations of poems very beautifully, very compellingly I find and um, so you know, is sound and rhythm important to you when you translate and more generally, do you think of the process of really as really you know trying to make a poem in English? that is somehow equal to the Arabic?
2: Yeah, so, you know, uh, I don't really think about translation in terms of equality. Uh, that, that's pro- that would probably be uh, demoralizing <laughs> as a translator, okay. uh, but, but it's a good question. And I, I mean, I guess I do approach it though. I do approach that aspect. I do think musicality is very important. And one thing I do a lot of is reading the Arabic out loud and then reading the English out loud. And, I will say there are some translations, it does happen sometimes, where the English sounds a lot like the Arabic, even in terms of the rhythm and and almost where Mm. it echoes the Arabic in a certain way. Mm. And uh, I just give a very short example of this uh, from Najwan's first book. I didn't even realize that this had happened kind of in English until I saw it in a review. Um, Mm. But he has the second poem called Jerusalem from his first book, Nothing More to Lose. I'm just gonna read a couple lines That's the beginning in the Arabic. And then in the English, when I leave you, I turn to stone. And when I come back, I turn to stone. I name you Medusa. I name you the older sister of Sodom and Gomorrah. You, the baptismal basin that burned Rome. So that was an example where I felt like they actually sounded quite, there was a strong echoing. Uh, but then a lot of the time, of course, the English takes on its own musicality. And really, I wouldn't say it's echoing it, but it's maybe compensating in some right. way for, you know, something is lost, but then it gains something new. Um, something so is for also- me, yeah, reading out loud is super important. I think every translator should do it, even with prose, but it's particularly important for, for poetry.
3: That was that was beautiful to hear those two lines and illuminating to hear those lines in, in English and in Arabic. So you know, as, as uh, the translator Karen Emmerich once put it to me very eloquently, translators are both writers and scholars, yet they're often not acknowledged for being either. So tell us a, just a bit about your journey into being a translator of poetry, and how the art of translating relates to. You know what it can offer, other kinds of literary art on one hand, and
2: scholarship on the other. Yeah, well, Karen is a great example of of somebody who's who's doing both. You know, just incredibly well. I really admire her work and look up to her work quite a lot. You know, my journey. I started translating in college, and you know, for a long time, it felt like translation was something I did on the side. And uh, but there was a lot of crossover between translation and scholarship for me. the first book I ever attempted to translate, which was a book by uh, Adonis, Adonis um, called "Songs of Mihyar the Damascan, that was a book that featured heavily in my PhD dissertation. Later on, so so there was certainly crossover. So I would say, you know, scholarship can definitely inform translation, just as translation can inform scholarship. And and many of the best translators I know are also scholars and 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 professors uh, in many cases, but the one thing, you know, it's also important to note where they differ. And there's also, I think, a lot of translations, particularly with Arabic, not so much nowadays, but maybe 10 years ago, it was happening more, where I felt like scholarly translations were a bit stilted, and were emphasizing meaning, uh, particularly with poetry, were emphasizing meaning over these other sort of less tangible aspects of a text, you know, like, you know, rhythm, impact, force, the emotional impact of a text, and often even just the sound. And so often a scholar will look at a text and, and, and find eight different meanings to an Arabic poem, all of which are valid. And then, But if you try to cram all eight of those into an English thing, it's not going to work, right? And right. so uh, there's a danger also. So in the best cases, scholarship and translation can be wonderful bedfellows. Uh, In the worst cases, it's going to be a very dysfunctional relationship. (laughs) So that's, I guess, how I would put it. Okay. Very beautiful,
3: Kareem. And and thank you for your answers and uh, for your work.
2: Thank you, Vivek. Thanks so much for for these great questions. Finally,
0: we turn to Gwen Hunter and Scott Abel of Solid State Books in Washington, D.C., who will offer two recommendations of recently translated works of literature.
4: Hi, my name is Gwen Hunter. I'm here at Solid State Books with Scott Abel. And we're gonna talk about some books in translation that we love. And Scott's gonna start.
5: The first one is a book that was written a few years ago. It's called Nancy by Bruno Loray. And uh, the translator is Ellen Jones. Uh, this book takes place in Chile in an imagined post-war Chile, fairly modern, but in the near future. And the subject uh, of our interest is a woman named Nancy who is suffering from a myriad of life, big life problems and she has cancer and her husband has been killed offshore and uh, disappeared. And she has family members coming and going from the story but it really captures kind of the essence of a a Latin American uh, country devastated by internal conflict war. And this character sort of draws upon many of the ways that you know state-sponsored violence really comes down and, and acts itself upon an individual citizen. I love this book for the way that it slowly builds in a, in, and creates a situation that you just can't escape even as a reader. It has a little bit of a taste of you know something like never let me go where there's a bit of a twist and it feels really modern and also has a, a great historical sort of background if you if you have an understanding of Latin American politics you know conflict in Chile. So this was a brilliant book. I've been recommending and hand-selling it a lot this year and I'm really excited to see others read it.
4: Thank you, Scott. I'm recommending The Hole by Hiroko Oyamada, as translated by David Boyd out from New Directions Press in April of 2020. I really love this book for its um, unsettling nature. It tells the story of a young woman who uh, marries into a family and is sent to live with her husband on a kind of a compound with the rest of her husband's family. Though so her husband spends most of his time at work, and her mother-in-law, and father-in-law, and their father, grandfather, seem to be always uh, preoccupied with what looks like nothing—just sort of gardening or cooking and cleaning or maintaining. Nobody really goes anywhere or does anything in the town. And she finds herself going for long walks at night, our main character. And one day she falls into a hole. The hole is exactly her height and is exactly wide enough to fit her standing straight up in the ground. Uh, a strange creature comes and finds her in the hole and sort of beckons her out. It is sort of dog-like, but is featureless, maybe like a shadow. And as she goes about the rest of her days following, she thinks she sees it everywhere. What I loved about the novel the most was not just that it was like unsettling in its nature, but its descriptions of the landscape, the descriptions of the creatures, descriptions of the people. And I imagine a lot of that is to David Boyd, the translator's credit, bringing something so imbued with Japanese folklore uh, into you know the hands of um, a Western English-speaking reader and still bringing through that sort of um, superstitious nature about it. It's very good, a little creepy, and actually, in the end, very uplifting. It's fantastic. We're really glad to uh, be a part of the Globally Lit series and had a good time making these recommendations for you. Again, we're Solid State Books. Thanks so much.
5: Thank you. We'll see you again next time.
0: That wraps up our episode of Globally Lit, a podcast. Thanks to Najwan, Kareem, Vivek, Scott, and Gwen for participating in this second episode. A very special thanks to Susie Rigdon at Fall for the Book and Watershed Lit at George Mason University. Globally Lit is part of the Watershed Lit Podcast Network, and Susie is our editor and sound engineer. And thanks, of course, to Anna Thorne at Books Across Borders. Remember to buy the books we featured today at Solid State Books in Washington, D.C. at SolidStateBooksDC.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with our third episode of Globally Lit. But for now, I'm Matt Davis saying bye-bye.